This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Today, uh, we are really excited to come and share with you some of the research that we are doing at our center at UCSF, the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research. Uh, Before we dive into our slides and talk, we'll just give brief introductions to uh, your speakers tonight. So I'm Julia Adler-Melstein. I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Medicine at UCSF and the director of the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research. AJ. Hello, my name is AJ Holmgren. I'm also an assistant professor here in the Department of Medicine and at the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research. So tonight we'll tell you a little bit about our research center um, and then share with you um, a set of different research studies, uh, many of which focus on the topic of COVID, which I know is a central theme in the mini med school series that you're participating in. Um, But also some of them will be uh, broader, thinking about where there are opportunities for technology uh, to both improve health system performance um, and places where it's been harder to uh, to perhaps see some of the value of investments in technology um, in terms of improving the robustness of, of our healthcare delivery system. Um, so, so tonight, again, the focus of, of our talk will be really thinking about the healthcare delivery system um, as a key component of an overall driver of, of the effect of, of, of health and, and societal outcomes, um, and thinking in particular about the role of technology within that. So the center that uh, AJ and I work in, uh, the Center for Clinical Informatics and Improvement Research, um, we are a collaborative research center um, that is really focused on doing research that answers this question of how can we maximize the impact of investments in digital health on health system performance. Over the past decade, there has been a huge investment of both public and private dollars uh, to digitize our healthcare system, largely moving from paper to electronic health records but building on top of electronic health records, a range of additional technologies, including today we hear a lot about artificial intelligence and other types of of, of tools that help clinicians make better decisions. Um, But a lot of times these technologies don't manifest the benefits in the way that we expect, at least not right off the bat, Um, or there can be some unintended consequences, things that didn't go as expected. Um, And so that's where there's a really important role for research to play and understanding how investments in digital health do or may not be translating into the improved health system performance that we expect. We try to do this research uh, using innovative approaches uh, that help um, sort of bring new insights into this broader question of how digital health is is impacting health system performance. Um, And we'll tell you a little bit tonight about some of the ways in which our research is, is particularly innovative. And we do this work both using UCSF Health and our delivery system uh, as a lab uh, in which we get to do our research, um, as well as doing research at national scale, um, because we focus on a lot of policy relevant questions. Uh, In many cases, our our studies will will really try to take a national snapshot uh, and understand how these trends are developing, um, not just at UCSF Health, but really in health systems across the nation. And last but not least, again, the motivation is that, you know, electronic health records have been widely implemented with the expectation that they would really be a key driver of improved health system performance. Um, But we don't really understand the mechanisms that are driving that. Like, what is it about having an electronic health record versus a paper health record 
uh, that helps us really understand how to improve clinical decision-making uh, that is ultimately what drives the quality of care. So that's the focus um, of, of our center and gives you a sense of sort of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I mentioned that I would talk a bit about what makes our center innovative. Um, and this is where I have the opportunity to go into that in a bit more detail. So there's a huge number of research studies and researchers um, who think about the electronic health record and the data that it contains as an opportunity to better understand the benefits of biomedical innovations. So for example, does this drug do what it's supposed to do? Or when we treat patients with diabetes, you know, in a certain way, giving them evidence-based care, do they have better outcomes? So the EHR allows you to do those types of, of clinical research studies. So we really understand the clinical interventions um, and their impact. But the electronic health record contains a, an additional set of data beyond just the patient's medical record. Um, and it's a type of data that many people don't know exists. Um, and so uh, as a result, it hasn't been as broadly integrated into research. Um, and this is, it's often called event or audit log data. Uh, but effectively what it is, is it's a data that, that tracks when anyone logs in to the electronic health record. So whether that's a doctor or a nurse or a social worker or a rehabilitation specialist, um, whoever it may be, it tracks all the actions and activities that they're doing in that record. So it is really a log of how individuals are using the system. And increasingly, as patients have access to their own medical records, these data also log how are patients interacting? Are they logging on to a patient portal, for example? Are they looking at their lab results? Are they emailing their doctor? So it's really a trove of behavioral data that helps us understand many of the key actions that undergird the outcomes that our health system delivers. So these audit log data effectively capture who is doing what when. And you can measure things then like, well, what information is your doctor viewing before they make a decision about what drug to prescribe? Or perhaps if something goes wrong, like an adverse event, you can look at the chain of events leading up to that, that outcome and try to understand what happened. Did they miss a key piece of information, um, for example? You can also study things like communication patterns, right? So I talked about patients logging on to the portal. Um, and they can um, send emails to, a, to their care team or you know, look at different types of information. So again, you can measure then communication patterns, see if patients who are communicating with their doctors have you know, better or worse outcomes, for example. So there's, again, this really interesting set of behavioral data that's captured in the EHR that is not really necessarily just about what is the clinical intervention that a patient might be receiving, but much more about the process of delivering care to them. Uh, which, uh, in our opinion, uh, there's just as much opportunity for insights into how we might be able to improve health system performance. So again, we view these data as offering a novel window into clinical decision-making and healthcare delivery processes that then help us better understand what can predict good or bad patient outcomes. So these audit logs or audit log data, they're mandated to be captured. Um, so every electronic health record has to generate these kinds of logs. Um, in some ways, they're very straightforward. Uh, they contain information on who accessed the record, what patient record they were accessing, when that access occurred, and then what actions were taken in the record. Was a new medication added to the medication list or were lab results reviewed? 
Um, so you can basically track these behaviors over time for a given patient's record or for a given clinician, see all the different records they touched and what they were doing in them. Um, so again, this is the this, this source of data that exists in the EHR. Um, oftentimes it's used for compliance purposes to uh, be able to make sure that there's not inappropriate record access. Someone who's not supposed to be looking at your record, you can go into these data and see, you know, was that in fact uh, the case that someone either, you know, inappropriately accessed a record, which is a HIPAA violation. But again, these data are there and available to, to researchers um, to, to, to ask a, a much broader set of questions around how electronic health records are used and how they may be impacting care. So using these data, there's a wide array of measures that you can imagine um, could be relevant to research. So you could just simply count actions. Um, for example, you could say, you know, how often was a clinician, you know, emailing with a patient um, or how often was a clinician, um, you know, entering an order or reviewing uh, historical data. Um, and that gives you perhaps some sense of intensity of activities. Um, you can then sort of group those into broader categories um, to try to understand, you know, what is the composition of, of clinical activities that take place in the electronic health record. And then increasingly, we're using those to look at time durations as we think about how do physicians and other specialists spend their time. It's a precious and limited commodity. Um, so being able to compute times that they spend on different activities in the EHR uh, helps us explain things like burnout, um, and efficiency and other really important constructs. This fourth bucket, you can then think about these data as generating sequences of activities. Sometimes we call this workflow, but you can imagine being able to look at sort of different pathways that clinicians take through the electronic health record and being able to then ask questions about is something more versus less efficient? Is it more efficient to, you know, do all of your chart review activity and then enter your orders and then write notes? Um, or are there other patterns or sequences that might be more efficient? You can then start to phenotype individual users and say, hey, we notice that there's one group of physicians that do things one way, and there's a different group of physicians that do things a different way, and like, is one better or worse in terms of patient outcomes or how much time they spend in the EHR? Um, so we can start to understand, again, these sort of behavioral drivers um, of how clinicians are using electronic health records. And, and this is an area in which there really isn't you know, ev an evidence base on a better or worse way to do things. Uh, you know, clinicians get some basic training on how to use the EHR, but there's not really, uh, you know, a, a lot of normative understanding of sort of the right way to, 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 to document and review information in the EHR. Um, so this is data that helps us start to understand whether there are better or worse ways uh, to do that. And then hopefully we can use that to then train providers uh, better on how to use this new tool. We'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later in the presentation. And then last but not least, you can generate really interesting measures of, of basically networks of providers. So how do care teams come together and work together? Um, we know that teams, for example, that have had a lot of prior experience working together tend to perform better. And so we can see that in these data. So, you know, how often has a given group of providers worked together before on uh, patient cases? And can we then see whether or under what circumstances teams um, and prior team experience matters? So we can, again, generate these really interesting network measures, not just measures of individual clinicians and in their work. So that was just a broad overview of the types of measures that uh, we're able to generate. I'm using this novel source of electronic health record data. 
Um, and now we want to tell you about some specific studies where you'll be able to see examples of how we use these data uh, to generate uh, policy relevant insights um, in, at, related to questions around how technology is impacting care. So we have organized our talk around the sort of three core domains uh, in which our research center does work. I'm going to talk about the first one related to interoperability. Um, which is a, a hot topic in, in health IT these days, and talk about one particular study um, in, in, in this domain of interoperability. Uh, and then I will hand it off to AJ to talk about some of our work in the clinician and care team work and well-being domain. Again, another really hot topic is sort of uh, uh, how clinicians and care teams are doing their work and whether uh, they are sort of a resilient workforce or whether there's, you know, sort of issues related to burnout. Um, and then uh, I'll come back at the end and, and talk a little bit also about that domain and then finish us off with the third domain where we've done research, which is on digitally enabled patient engagement. Um, and again, the common theme across these is that they sort of relate to how technology is impacting uh, frontline care. Um, and they leverage these event or audit log data in order to bring new insights into these policy relevant questions. Okay, so we're going to dive into our first study. Okay, so the first project I'm going to tell you about, uh, let me just start with the policy context. Interoperability is just basically a fancy way of saying, how do we move information between different electronic health record systems? Um, I think all of us have experienced in our own lives uh, going to different health systems and the fact that it's rare that our health information follows us. Um, that usually there's some combination of, you know, phone, fax, you may have to, you know, bring your own records with you. Um, and the idea is once we've moved to electronic health records, why can't we just have those systems share uh, records with each other and say, oh, well, now, you know, Julia just moved to San Francisco. Um, so UCSF, why can't you get her records from the place that she just came from? And so this has been a major policy priority because it could really improve both the efficiency and quality of care if we could get electronic health records to sort of better talk to each other, so to speak, electronically. Um, and if you look at the national data, it turns out that like more than 80% of U.S. hospitals say, hey, we are doing this. We are exchanging data electronically. Our electronic health record is exchanging data with others, uh, other electronic health records. But what's interesting when you dig into this data a little bit more deeply is that uh, uh, more than a third of those hospitals say, well, even though we're exchanging the, this data electronically, we're actually not really using it, which perhaps obvious doesn't need to be stated, but like defeats the purpose, right? If you've done the electronic exchange, but you're not actually then using the data, um, then we haven't really solved any problems. And then when asked why, like, why aren't you using this data um, that has exchanged, been exchanged electronically? Um, there's several reasons, but the top-sided reason is that it's actually difficult to really integrate that information into the EHR, which means that yes, we exchanged it electronically, but sort of once we got it, it was almost just like you had faxed it over. It's like a big document filled with all sorts of information. We can't actually find in it easily what's what. Um, and so that makes it hard to use because our clinicians are busy and they don't have time to, you know, to, to sort of sort through all of these different documents. They just need to know, well, where is it, you know, exactly what I'm looking for. Um, and so if we're not able to exchange data in that more sort of granular way, such that it can be integrated into the EHR, then it's not surprising that this electronic exchange is happening, but it's not really getting used uh, as frequently. So to solve this problem, um, 
one electronic health record vendor, which happens to be the one that UCSF uh, uses and many other large academic medical centers said, okay, well, if that's really the problem, like, why don't we do a better job of starting to integrate that information? And so, uh, so what they did was to sort of change the way that their electronic health record was designed, such that before there was sort of a place you could go in the electronic health record to see all of those other records, right? The non-UCSF records, so to speak. Um, and you would just go and you could just see, okay, this patient had been to four other places and like here was all their other records. But it was like a separate part of the EHR you had to go to in order to see those. So what they did to try to address this issue around integration was that they moved that information from being in a separate place to being integrated into the same information from that local health system. So again, in this case, my example from UCSF. Um, And so what you see here, this is a screenshot from the Epic EHR. And what you can see highlighted here is that this is this list of encounters where the patient has been. Um, And again, you can imagine for a clinician, really important to see like where's all the places that this patient has been before. Um, And what they did was they moved all of the information associated with these outside encounters into this same list of encounters with the local health system. So again, they sort of integrated at this much more granular level, the outside record. So a clinician could just go to one place in the EHR and see everything, see what had happened in their local health system and see what had happened in these outside health systems. So it was a fairly like subtle, I would say, user interface design change. Like all of this information was still in the record. They just moved where it was located in a way that they thought might make it more intuitive um, so that clinicians might be more likely to, to view those outside records. Um, so what we did is we, we just, we observed that this change was happening. This wasn't a research study. This is just part of what this, this electronic health record vendor did as part of upgrading their product. But we said, hey, this is a really important research opportunity to understand whether when you make a user interface design change like this, do you actually see that it makes it easier to look at outside information? So what we did is we used these EHR audit log data that tell us, well, how often is a frontline clinician looking at an outside record? That's one of the things that's logged. And we just counted over time before and after this change in the design of the EHR happened, like how how much more often were outside records looked at? So what this graph shows is basically just a count of that UCSF health, like how often was one of these outside outside records viewed? So again, this could be an outside record from Kaiser or from Sutter or from, uh, you know, UCLA, you know, you name it, some system outside of UCSF where, where our patients had been seen previously. So prior to this change, you can see that we were looking at about 20,000 of these outside records per week. And then when this interface design change happened, again, the EHR, all they did was just change where this information was located to a slightly more intuitive place. You can see there was this dramatic jump up. And we went from about 20,000 per week views to, you know, really around 45,000. So like more than doubled how often clinicians viewed these outside record data. Again, they had always been available. All we did was just put it in a more obvious place. So this was a highly significant increase um, of almost 30,000 outside record views per week. What we were able to do with these audit log data that I think was particularly cool in the study Um, is to be able to say, well, like, how do you know it was this new user interface design? Like maybe something else happened at that same point in time that caused that big increase that you see. 
So with the log data that I mentioned, you can actually see which part of the EHR the clinician is in. So this light gray line is, is quote unquote, the old way of viewing these outside records where you had to go to like a separate part of the EHR to see them. And what you can see is that that actually remains stable over this whole period. So that use didn't, you know, dramatically go up or down. It actually stayed the same. But this new channel that was made available where you could see them, where you were used to seeing this list of UCSF health encounters jumped up dramatically. Um, and so you see this big bump and that's, again, that's the new thing that happened. So we can feel pretty confident that it was that change in how the EHR was designed that increased how often these outside records were viewed. So again, what is like, you know, what is, why is this interesting and important? Um, you know, this is interesting and important because we want our clinicians to be able to have access to our prior records and not just have access, but actually look at them and view them. Um, and if they don't actually do that piece, then it's not that useful that we've made them available in theory, but not really used in practice. Um, and so in part, because our study showed that there was this big increase uh, from better integrating these outside records into the EHR design, um, Epic, this vendor that we studied, um, has gone on to say, okay, well, why don't we integrate other types of information? Not just the list of encounters, but why don't we actually integrate lab test results? So you can see an entire history of a patient's lab test results um, and not just see the UCSF lab test results in one place and all the outside lab results in another place. Um, so that's our next step is to study the impact of, of this lab result integration. Uh, I suspect we'll see as dramatic an increase. Um, and here we really also have the opportunity to tie it to an important policy outcome, which is how often are lab tests repeated? Uh, because if a clinician doesn't know that you've had the same lab test done somewhere else or can't easily access that result, they're much more likely to order it again. And so this change in which it should be easier for them to see your past results should mean that we see lower levels of repeat lab ordering. So again, it's a little bit technical of a, of a, of a question in a research study, but it addresses this broader policy question of how do we get clinicians more complete information? And then how can that how can we show that that impacts outcomes like uh, redundant testing and other types of redundant utilization? This is particularly relevant to COVID because we know that during COVID care got disrupted um, and being able to know whether a patient had a COVID test done recently and what the outcome of it is, is so significant and important. Um, and so the better we are at integrating these outside records and, and being able to present a complete picture of health information to a clinician at the point of care, uh, the better results we'll have in general and specifically as we're thinking about how our health system can adapt to COVID. Okay, so that was, again, in this domain of interoperability, an example of how we are using these audit log data to answer policy-relevant questions, again, with specific implications for how we can deliver better care in the context of COVID. I will now hand it over to AJ to talk about uh, an example of uh, his study uh, in the context of clinician and care team work and well-being. AJ, why don't you take over from here and then I'll pop back on after. Thank you very much. So our second domain that CLEAR really focuses on is this idea of clinician care team work and well-being. We want to spend some time understanding where physicians and other members of the care team, like advanced practice practitioners or nurses or medical assistants are spending their time. And one of the fundamental reasons behind this is there is oftentimes in both the press and when you speak to care providers, a deep dissatisfaction with the electronic health record. 
One reason for this is since the United States has rapidly adopted these electronic systems that replace paper-based charting, it's become really easy for work to suddenly follow clinicians home. This was previously very difficult. While certainly physicians took charts home in the past, uh, now they have to be sort of available to receive emails, to message with patients, to message with other members of the care team if something goes wrong. Technology is often a really great boost to productivity and to quality and to sort of what we can do in our work, but it also is a double-edged sword. It allows us to bring work home. It allows work to sort of infiltrate all these aspects of our lives that it was previously walled off from by physical distance. And so we really want to interrogate, make sure the technology is deriving benefits for patients and for physicians without overburdening them, without causing them burnout. Burnout in healthcare can be extremely expensive. It takes years to train new physicians. And during that process, we end up very supply constrained. And that falls to patients who are trying to access important medical care and can't do it because there simply aren't enough care providers in their region. This is even worse in areas that are already traditionally supply constrained, like rural areas where patients are often driving hours only to find that their physician is unavailable. So this particular study wanted to look at this and this impact of EHR use on physician well-being and physician work time in the context of the COVID pandemic. Unsurprisingly, COVID really disrupted work and work and life balance for almost everyone. But this had an especially big effect on physicians and other members of the care team, because not only were they dealing with this new big change of a pandemic, needing to care for patients with this you know, incredibly infectious disease, they also had this big move towards telehealth and telemedicine. Early on in the pandemic, the federal government realized that there was going to be a big demand for sort of non-in-person care, which is to say, you know, if you are a person who is potentially vulnerable to COVID, but you still want to see your primary care provider, you would very much like to be able to have a phone call with them rather than having to go in and potentially expose yourself to COVID-19. So there was this massive expansion of telemedicine. There was a correspondingly big decrease in in-person care. Uh, as of March of 2020, there was a dramatic decrease in ambulatory and outpatient volume as people simply canceled their appointments or physician offices closed or simply weren't able to take care of patients. And then there's also a correspondingly different way in which we work during the pandemic. We saw a big change in patient behavior. Uh, in the past, patient portal messaging with their provider has been a relatively small subset of patients, usually younger, usually higher socioeconomic status, and usually healthier. That changed dramatically at the COVID pandemic. It was sort of the, the final push to get patients to sign up for their portal and to start messaging with their provider. So we wanted to use our EHR audit log data to sort of interrogate what were the sort of downstream effects on the physician workday during all these changes. And these changes included both the pandemic, the changes in patient behavior and preferences, and the expansion of virtual care and telehealth. So just to give you a sense of, of where we got this data from, as Julia mentioned earlier, much of our data is on the national level. We're specifically trying to inform policymakers, in this case, looking to sort of build physician well-being programs, as well as there's sort of actively determining how much telehealth we want to continue reimbursing for in the post-pandemic era. It's pretty obvious that there'll be a pretty significant increase 
from where we were in 2019. But this sorts of information about how much time telehealth takes, how much burden it puts on clinicians in terms of their time is really useful for helping policymakers and insurance companies really narrow down the range of what they should be paying for telehealth visits in compared to in-person visits. This is 366 health systems from the largest electronic health record vendor in the United States, which is Epic, which UCSF Health is included in this, as well as many other systems, most of the largest academic medical centers in the country, places like the UCSF's Stanford, Mayo Clinic, or Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston usually use Epic. All of our data comes from physicians as well as advanced practice providers. Those are physician assistants and nurse practitioners, anyone who has scheduled patient appointments with their own patient panel aggregated up to the health system level. And our data runs from December of 2019, so prior to the COVID pandemic, through January of 2021. And that's really important. So we have a full, almost full year of, of COVID because things changed dramatically from the first onset of COVID to what we call a steady state that we reached by July of 2020 or so. This first slide just charts how much time they are spending in the electronic health record actively working per day on the left and how much time they're spending outside of clinic hours, as in at home, after their final appointment is finished, charting, documenting, messaging with patients, or otherwise working outside of that time. On the left, you see right as COVID hits with that vertical black line, there's a dramatic decrease in electronic health record time per day. The green dotted line there is daily patient volume. So unsurprisingly, when the number of patients that a physician is seeing per day decreases, their work time in the electronic health record also decreases. This sort of returns gradually as the amount of volume returns to its pre-COVID state. But you'll notice in July of 2020 that the total electronic health record work time per day is higher than it was by a little bit in the pre-COVID era, but the daily encounter volume is still lower than it was in the pre-COVID era. So even though it looks like on first glance that what's happening here is that things get back to normal, the per appointment time spent is actually higher. So they are spending more time in the electronic health record working on documenting or messaging or reviewing information, despite having fewer patients per day. Similarly, we see a similar story in after hours time per day. While it seems like it returns to its normal level, the volume change is significant here. And that's what makes this concerning. So this is our first sort of indication that this is a problem we should dive into because even prior to COVID, there are a lot of issues with electronic health records and the work that comes with documenting and working in them, sort of causing clinician burnout, causing clinicians to leave their jobs. So if we have the COVID pandemic layered on top of even more electronic health record work, that could potentially be a perfect storm to really do you know, significant damage to the well-being and effectiveness of our nation's clinicians. These are sort of similar uh, charts that look at this controlling for um, volume per day. So we can see by July of 2020, uh, there is a statistically significant increase in electronic health record time per day and after hours time per day. So when we look at this with more advanced models that control for things like patient and clinician characteristics, we still find that time per day is elevated. So we are asking our clinician workforce to work longer hours during the pandemic at a time when they're already experiencing a significant amount of burnout, when we're already asking them to work longer hours in the clinic 
that is then translating to more time outside of the clinic where they need to finish documenting, where they need to prepare for their next day, when they need to respond to messages from their patients. The next thing we did was say, okay, well, we have a good sense that electronic health record work time is elevated, that physicians are working more and their days are longer. Where is that time going? What, what, what aspect of electronic health records is really driving this change? And the upside of these very detailed EHR audit log data, these event logs, is that we can see exactly where they're spending that time. So the top left here is time in in-basket per day. So you can see right as COVID hits, there's a huge increase in how much time they're spending because a lot of patients started messaging their physician. And you can see that that kind of comes up and stays at a really elevated level throughout the rest of 2020 and into January of 2021. This was our first sign that what's going on here is driven not just by sort of changes in telemedicine or something that changed about the nature of clinical work due to the pandemic, but what's happening is that physicians are responding to patient demands to spend more time messaging. This sort of asynchronous patient portal messaging really took off during this, this during the pandemic and you know, physicians want to be responsive to their patient panel. They want to provide high quality care. They're not going to simply let messages go unanswered. So that's driving a significant part of that increase. On the top right panel, you can see time in clinical review or chart review per day, how much time they're spending looking at their patient's history, et cetera. And you can see there's a slight increase there. This might reflect sort of the changes in the nature of how care is delivered when you're delivering care via telemedicine. When you don't have a physical exam, when you don't have a nurse or medical assistant prep the patient in the exam room before you get in there in order to brief you, you might need to spend a little bit more time reading about what was the last thing they were here for? What are they in for now? What's on their problem list? What kind of medications are they taking? These are things that can be prepped for now in a sort of virtual care world before you get into that Zoom exam room that previously a staff member like a nurse or a medical assistant might have done. You can see the bottom two, time in orders, which is sort of placing prescriptions or placing orders, and then time in notes, so writing up documentation, noting what you did, preparing the next clinician who sees this patient to know what, that, what happened at this visit, sort of decreased dramatically, that represents the volume decrease, and then returned basically to about its normal spot in the pre-pandemic era. So we can really isolate these two things, messaging in the inbox, and then reading and reviewing patient information are what's driving that increase. So not only can we see using these EHR audit log data that there is an increase, we can identify what's driving the increase, where physicians are now spending that time. Diving a little bit deeper into the inbox messaging, since that seems to be one of the biggest aspects of this, we said, okay, there are a whole lot of different messages that physicians can receive. There are messages from patients asking for medical advice, or there are messages from other members of the care team asking for consultations or information or simply communicating across the care team. There are prescription messages. So when you want a, a refill or you want a three month supply or you want to modify your medication somehow, you get a prescription message. And there are results messages to alert physicians that a lab test is in that they may have ordered, a patient successfully was able to get that done. So we can see here what the real driver is are these patient messages. You can see the, the, the left side of the axes here are percentage changes. So you can see compared to the pre-pandemic period, patients are messaging 50% more with their physician. That's a huge increase in terms of relative volume. 
The rest of these look pretty similar as they move about. We might see a little bit elevated team messages, which represents simply a move to virtual care. If you're no longer physically co-located with other members of your care team, you may need to send a message between a nurse and a physician or between two different physicians as you sort of coordinate care for a patient that might have previously just been an in-person communication where you might have chatted in the hallway. Prescription messages rose dramatically right as COVID started, as many patients obviously wanted to make sure they had an adequate supply, uh, and then sort of returned to their pre-pandemic period. Similar to results messages, there was a dramatic decrease that simply represents that there are fewer lab tests being ordered that simply returned to their pre-COVID period. So once again, we've really drilled down and identified exactly what is driving this additional work. So now we can start crafting potential policy solutions or potential workflow solutions to say, we've identified what the problem is. Now let's think about where we can go from here to ensure that we're still giving patients a high quality experience, that we're still responding to their needs, while also protecting our providers from burnout and from being overly burdened when they're trying to get away from their job at home. Finally, this is simply a, an estimate of how much time each marginal message takes. Because a lot of the messages that physicians receive are sort of FYIs. They're like emails that end up in your promotions or spam folder to say, hey, there's a sale on. You know, there's no requirement needed when a, when a result is in. Or, you know, when another care team messages you, there are a lot of system-generated messages that just are FYIs. But we can see here, patient messages are not FYIs. They take a significant amount of time to respond to, nearly two and a half minutes per patient message. When you combine that with the fact that patient message increased by 50% during the pandemic and has stayed high throughout that post-pandemic period, that's a significant amount of extra work that physicians are now doing that is oftentimes uncompensated. It's often done either between appointments or it gets shifted to at-home work as they answer these on their phones, as they answer them late at night, as they answer them when they're otherwise not scheduled to be in clinic because they're simply too busy during their clinic hours to get it done. So you can see, you know, not only is this the significant source of the new messages, they're also the most onerous messages to respond to, which makes a lot of intuitive sense. It takes time to respond to patients. You want to do a good job. You want to provide high quality care because this set of communication is care delivery. It's not any different than talking to someone on the phone. Uh, so I think it's really important that we recognize that while this is a great and extremely useful service to patients, this big increase comes with a significant burden on our workforce. So the takeaways from this study, for those of us who really, you know, coming at this from a policy perspective or a workflow perspective, how should we adapt our world to the new normal of COVID, is that there were really big disruptions right at the onset of the pandemic. Uh, and that translated into by the time everything settled down and we saw ambulatory care reopening in sort of July of 2020, we saw a sort of increased durable amount of time that physicians had to spend working in the electronic health record. And this increase was really driven by mostly time in the in-basket. And that is driven by patient messages. 150% of the pre-pandemic amount is simply a lot of extra work. And this is physicians doing their best to be responsive to the needs of patients, the needs of their community who want to be able to sort of securely message with their provider without having to go in. And I think that's important to know because this doesn't look like it's going to change. This does not look like it's going to be a temporary pandemic-driven change in how we interact with technology. It looks like the pandemic created a durable shift in how people expect to be able to communicate with their healthcare provider. 
And this is sort of several other ongoing evaluations we have with EHR audit log data, um, because what we're really trying to do here is look at what's going on and how we can then build interventions to reduce their electronic health record burden. Because we are seeing increases from patient demand, we wanna be able to reduce the burden they have elsewhere. So if we can reduce the amount of time they spend documenting in notes or make them more efficient as they place orders, we can allow physicians to spend more time working on their patient messaging, things that we think are very high value time spent and reduce their low value time spent, such as documenting that is really just for insurance purposes. Uh, one of these is an evaluation of the 2021 changes in evaluation and management codes. So the federal government, uh, in combination with the American Medical Association, is trying to tackle this issue of needing to document a lot in order to bill for something. So there's a reduction in what was necessary there. Similarly, we're looking at the impact of patient access to clinical notes. Last year, the federal government mandated that all patients have their all of their electronic health information provided at no cost. So it's absolutely free. You should be able to get all of your clinician's notes for any of your visits. And so we wanted to look at, well, what's changing there? Is that forcing physicians to document more carefully and more slowly now that they know that there will be other people or be patients reading it? Um, also looking at trying to tease out the impact of telehealth for when you give a telehealth visit compared to an in-person one, what are the differences in the demands on physician time? Is it harder? Does it stress them more? Do they have to make more difficult decisions when they aren't able to see the patient in person or perform a physical exam? And finally, what we really wanna do is find and disseminate effective strategies to reduce EHR burden and documentation burden. There are all sorts of efficiency increasing tools in the EHR, like copying and pasting, like using templated text, like using support staff to help document for you. We wanna identify those so we can sort of disseminate the best practices and hopefully build both a policy and management environment that sort of supports physicians, allows patients to communicate and work with their care team in ways that work for them, all without burdening that our physician workforce with burnout and with extra work. Uh, well, thank you, AJ, for um, sharing that work with us. Um, we have two more examples to share with you as part of our talk tonight. Um, this is going to be a little bit less uh, researchy and more conceptual. So you've um, succeeded in getting through all, the, all of the numbers uh, part of this talk. Um, and now you get to just hear, uh, again, a few more examples that, that are more conceptual. Um, the next two examples that I'm going to talk about of our work, too, um, are led by our colleague, uh, Dr. Ben Rosner, who wasn't able to join tonight because he is taking care of patients in the hospital. Um, and so I did want to give him credit as for this work that he's led. Um, so, so again, we're, we're talking about sort of ways in which our research center, CLEAR, has been able to use EHR data to help bring insights into different domains. I talked about interoperability first, um, and then AJ kicked us off with talking about sort of clinician uh, work and well-being. Um, and so this is another example of, uh, of how we're trying to do research that um, uh, helps us better understand clinicians in general. But in this particular study, it's really about clinicians in training. Um, as clinicians are uh, going through, you know, medical school and residency, you know, there's many aspects of their uh, their performance that uh, that are evaluated. Uh, but there are actually very few that relate to the EHR and whether they are engaging in EHR-based activities uh, to uh, to sort of the expected level. 
Um, and given the fact that now using the electronic health record is really a central part of what it means to deliver care, um, there's a really important need to try to understand, like, are our trainees um, savvy at using the EHR and using it in, in ways that we expect uh, in order to, to sort of do some of the things AJ was talking about, like review a patient's chart. Um, it's really important that our clinician be good at that. Um, and, and again, reviewing an electronic chart um, can be a quite complex activity uh, because there's so much information in there. Um, so in this project, which uh, we've been calling the trainee digital growth chart, um, which is sort of a play on the concept of a, of, a, of a growth chart for a kid where you can sort of track, are they growing along the expected trajectory? Here we wanted to develop a tool where we can say, are our trainees sort of digitally growing? Like, are they learning how to use the electronic health record as a key part of what it means to be a good physician? So how did this uh, uh, study come about? Um, one of the uh, ways that UCSF kind of invests in, in being uh, the best at our mission area around educating learners who will go on to improve the health of our communities um, is by uh, ensuring that they are uh, excelling in the competencies needed by 21st century physicians. Um, so to put this into action, they actually fund, UCSF funds projects that help us understand whether our um, graduates are engaging in these 21st century competencies. And in particular, what, uh, what UCSF has uh, invested in is trying to understand like what tools can we use to assess our learners in these competencies um, and help give our faculty uh, uh, better uh, approaches to be assessing uh, those who are still in training and giving them good sort of feedback and opportunities for, uh, for, for insights into development. So the learners themselves, as I said, are med students and, um, and residents, et cetera. Um, you know, they want to know how they're performing as well um, and thinking about, you know, how do we understand what it means to be, a, you know, a fully trained physician? Like, what are these objective skills and set of expectations that I need to meet um, in order to progress through my learning trajectory? And then our teaching faculty, part of their job is being able to collect objective information to inform how they're assessing our learners and being able to give them feedback that is kind of objective and tells them how they're progressing. And then last but not least, all of this happens within our graduate medical education ecosystem, um, where they are sort of at a broader level setting guidelines for, uh, for, for training and assessment. And again, they, they have recognized that now that we have electronic health records, we should probably be doing assessment of our learners in a 21st century way. How do we use EHR data to inform assessments, uh, which we've never had the opportunity to do before? So sort of all of these forces came together to, to develop this concept of, well, how can we develop a trainee digital growth chart um, and actually start to provide use EHR data to provide uh, better feedback to both faculty and trainees um, about these key set of 21st century competencies around using the EHR. So to ground this work, uh, we felt that, you know, using EHR data uh, is, is very well suited to assessing how our trainees are progressing on this key skill of information gathering. So again, you know, when you're seeing a doctor for the first time, what do they do? They gather information, right? They ask you a bunch of questions. They look at your medical record. Um, and so it's a really critical set of skills to be able to say, is a doctor developing in their clinical reasoning uh, by gathering information? 
And in the EHR, you can observe that those set of activities, like what information are, you know, is a given individual looking at as part of, of, of assessing a patient and, and, and going through their chart. So what that means is that we can actually kind of define a gold standard, use our faculty who are very experienced clinicians to say, like, what does it mean to do you know, uh, a sort of gold standard information review in the EHR. What would you expect someone to look at uh, if they are assessing a patient uh, in the EHR? And then we can use these EHR audit log data that we keep referring to to actually measure, like to what extent is an individual trainee adhering to that sort of faculty defined gold standard? Um, and then be able to give both the learner and the faculty and their training program feedback on how they are doing. So this is just a screenshot of something where you can say, okay, what percent of expected information gathering activities did you engage in and how does that map to sort of your, your group of peers? Um, again, you know, you can uh, imagine doing that in even more detail. So, um, you know, did you check lab results? Did you view consult notes? Did you review orders from others? Um, and being able to directly measure how often um, people at different uh, stages of training were doing this. And again, the goal is that you would see that growth that maybe, you know, when you're starting out that, you know, there are times where you forgot to check lab results or you forgot to review orders from others. And we need to give people feedback on if they're doing that so that they know, oh, yes, that's not something that I remember to do regularly. Um, and so I need to have that become part of my uh, standard, you know, standard clinical practice. Again, right now, there's just no real opportunity for this type of feedback. So again, this is just another example of, you know, you can, um, we can look at it in the context of daily rounds. Um, so, you know, when you're doing rounds, are you looking at all the types of information that you would expect to prepare for rounds? So, so you know, what, like, why did we talk about this example? Um, so it's, it's really because if you look at how we are doing assessment today, um, most of it is pretty subjective and time intensive and, um, and, and with the opportunity for bias. We, we effectively ask our faculty to kind of fill out, uh, you know, written evaluations about, well, like, how did, you know, trainee A do over the past, you know, three months? How did trainee B do? Um, and this really isn't leveraging all of the, you know, data that we now have available uh, that could allow for more novel assessment approaches that are automated, lower burden, more objective, and more realistic. Um, and again, these EHR audit log data really provide the opportunity to do that. So again, part of what we're doing at CLEAR is, is not just research, but really trying to uh, design, build, and study um, interventions that can solve you know, real-world problems. Um, and here, using these data to help give trainees better guidance on how they're progressing um, is a really uh, important and novel application. Um, so we're trying to take this forward, not just at UCSF, but thinking about, you know, where we can sort of uh, have this become uh, an approach to, uh, to trainee assessment that's used more broadly. Okay, last but not least, um, we want to talk about this uh, third area of uh, digitally enabled patient engagement. Um, and perhaps this is one that, um, you know, that is more easy to relate to because sort of we as patients, um, you know, everyone, you know, to some degree has an experience as a patient and has seen how the healthcare system has really transformed in terms of, uh, of, of, of the set of tools that are made available to patients uh, to report their own data or to view their medical record. So there's really been an explosion here and a lot that's important to study uh, to complement what we're learning about how clinicians are using technology. So here I want to talk in particular about 
PGHD, which is short for patient-generated health data. Um, this could be anything from patients, you know, tracking and monitoring, um, you know, think about step counts or blood pressure or weight, right? Many different types of things, symptoms that patients can monitor at home and report to their clinician that can be really significant in terms of having their clinician understand what's going on with them in a more sort of uh, routine way than they would if they just come in to see their patient, uh, see their doctor, you know, once a year or twice a year. So there's been a lot of hype and excitement about like the possibilities for patient generated health data. Um, But if you actually look at how often this is happening, like how often are clinicians asking patients to record and report their own data, it's really not taken off. Um, And that's due to a variety of reasons. Um, but, But I think there is a sense that like it really hasn't achieved its potential. But here's another example of when COVID um, created sort of new opportunities. So um, as uh, as AJ talked about, this sort of shift to telemedicine that happened during COVID in many ways was great because it created sort of a new modality of care that patients could take advantage of. But one of the limitations of telemedicine is that you actually can't do things like collect vital signs um, because the patient isn't in front of you in the office. So you may actually have to rely on the patient to generate their own health data as you would in a face-to-face interaction. Um, And so we were curious, like, well, when COVID happened, do we actually see an increase in how often patients are asked to report their own health data to their clinicians? So so we answered this research question using a national vendor that uh, has a solution that allows patients to report their health data um, to their clinicians. It's called Validic. Um, and, and there are 11 health systems across the country with, you know, more than 4,500 physicians and more than 51,000 patients uh, who were using this platform. And so we were just curious, like during the pandemic, did we see that there was an increase in use of these, this platform that allowed patients to report data to their providers? Um, and the short answer is uh, yes. <laughs> um, if we just looked at how many providers uh, enrolled in the platform, basically say, signaling that they wanted to start being able to receive data from their patients, uh, we see an increase at the start of the pandemic uh, in terms of how many uh, clinicians were enrolling on this platform, saying that they wanted to be able to do this with their patients. And then if you actually look at how much data was going through the platform, Um, we see that there was just sort of a steady increase over time. Um, And what's notable about this is that like this steady increase happened at a time when we know that overall encounters dropped dramatically uh, at the start of the pandemic. So even though um, clinicians were seeing patients much less frequently, patients were reporting data at a consistent level, uh, suggesting again that these data were serving an important need uh, when you couldn't deliver continuous face-to-face care that this was a real substitute, being able to sort of uh, share, um, you know, vitals and other types of of, of patient-generated data with clinicians. Um, So again, an interesting way of thinking about how do we understand how patients are using technology to engage, particularly in this post-pandemic period where um, more needs to happen in this sort of virtual way with patients reporting data um, that may have previously been collected during inpatient encounters, in-person encounters. So again, we want to bring it back to the policy level um, because uh, the, the, the series is really about what are some of the policy implications. We've struggled at a national level to kind of figure out what our national policy should be around patient-generated health data. Um, for a while, it was proposed that like there would be a requirement that all physicians in the country needed to be able to receive 
data from their patients electronically, but then there was some walking back of that, um, uh, that decision. And ultimately that didn't go into effect as a policy. Um, and there's been a lot of questions about reimbursement. Um, as AJ talked about with messaging, there's similar questions about, well, should we pay clinicians to review these data generated by patients? Um, and so there increasingly now is, um, you know, some opportunity to get reimbursed for reviewing these data, uh, but, but probably not to the extent that's really going to drive uptake and use. Um, so this has been, uh, you know, an area where, again, the federal government, I think, has been very curious about, you know, how to promote this. It seems really important for patients to be able to report their data, um, but haven't quite figured out what the policy framework is to really help it take off. Um, and is it is it really about reimbursement or is it about figuring out which patients should report data or which data is really important to report? Um, so I think we're still, there's a lot to learn here around these capabilities and how do we engage patients in reporting data in ways that sort of improve their outcomes while at the same time uh, not overburdening uh, clinicians uh, in reviewing data and really focusing it on data that, that's useful um, and, and could actually improve, uh, you know, decisions and outcomes. Okay, so we talked about a lot today. We tried to give you three examples, sort of talk about our work in three topic areas. Again, they all relate to, you know, where there are opportunities to use these data that are being captured in the electronic health record about how care is delivered and how clinicians use EHRs and how do we get insights into topics that are policy relevant and sort of touch on where we are today as a healthcare system coming out of the pandemic and as AJ talked about, like trying to kind of achieve this balance of, you know, better patient outcomes, not burning out our workforce, you know, engaging patients using technology. Um, there's a lot that's happening and changing and, and, you know, many things that are getting better, but also some things that, you know, that are potentially getting worse. Um, and that's where the research is really important to try to, you know, gain a full understanding of sort of what's working and what's not and where we might need to be taking new and different approaches. So that's where we're going to end our formal thoughts for tonight. You know, AJ, maybe I can ask you a question if you're comfortable. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, so I'm curious, you know, if you think that, um, you know, what you showed was like a, a big increase in patient messaging and patients, you know, uh, sending emails to their providers. Um, and, you know, do you have any sense of kind of like what, uh, you know, what, what, like, what the value is of that? Like, do we have any understanding of like when patients are doing that or like for what kinds of patients that's been, you know, particularly valuable or is that really an area where there's still like a need for, for more research and evidence? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's obviously an area where we need a lot more research and evidence. A lot of our, our evidence on patient portal messages comes from this pre-COVID period because they have been around for quite a long time and you've been able to message with your physician for a decade in many instances, depending on, on when your, your provider adopted an electronic health record. But on the other hand, now we've seen a very big shift in the composition of patients who are messaging. It's almost like all of that research is, is you know, not even quite as relevant as it once was because COVID has upended what those messages are about and who is doing the messages. So there's a lot of situations where you can imagine where it's really valuable, where if you are an established patient 
and you want to just message your provider and say, Hey, I liked the medication I was on previously for my blood pressure. I had, you know, better side effects. I, you know, I, I, I just liked it better. I tolerated it better. Let's go back to that. Sending a quick email to do that is way more convenient for the patient side. You can save yourself a drive to your physician. You save yourself a copay maybe. Uh, and it's just a lot easier to do than having to actually go in. And it's a lot nicer for the physician because that frees up an appointment slot for potentially a sicker or higher acuity visit. So we could have something that's just purely beneficial. We can substitute some of our in-person care. Some other bits might be compliments. And this is where it gets a little bit trickier to identifying value is it's certainly helpful to have more touch points with your care team, with your clinicians, with the health system when you're doing something like managing a chronic disease or for very sick patients who are managing multiple chronic conditions, who have multiple comorbidities, or who are sort of, you know, going through a really tumultuous care process, such as someone with cancer, you know, being able to, to touch in and check in to say, hey, I'm having this symptom, what does that mean uh, at any given time is great. But we do need to simply, we do need to balance that off with physician well-being. We can't simply ask oncologists to work 24 hours a day. So I think that's where we sort of need to explore is finding these areas where they are complements and trying to figure out how we're going to deal with that. And whether that's, you know, maybe parts of the nursing team handle these as they come in because there's always a nurse on shift rather than asking the, you know, physicians or, or a single person to take ownership of the inbox. Or maybe it's sort of implementing some of this billing strategy where you simply reduce the amount of in-person visits you have every day and you're able to bill for some of these messages. And so you're able to shift a little bit of your work into this asynchronous communication, because I think patients have clearly spoken with their actions that they find it valuable. What we need to do is figure out what workflow-wise and what policy-wise we can do to find a good balance there and make this sort of a sustainable long-term care modality so that it doesn't sort of just, uh, you know, burden physicians. Okay, we have a question. So thank you for um, for, for, for this question. Uh, I'll read it, uh, which is... Um, Curious if willingness to report or share patient-generated data is age-related. Uh, young people have grown up seeing privacy being traded for huge conveniences and benefit. This trade-off, or the trade-off um, some of us are uneasy with, might be less problematic for our children. Um, so it's a great question. And, um, uh, and I think what's interesting is that overall, um, I think we've seen that the patients who are engaging with like digital health tools, like portals, for example, uh, it's been more older people <laughs> than younger people, because I think those are people who get healthcare. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's perhaps not surprising that there's been interest and willingness to kind of get on, you know, tools like the portal um, and, and, and view information. Um, but I think you're actually asking a more nuanced question, uh, which is about, you know, specifically providing your own data uh, where that could uh, be perceived as sort of more of a privacy risk. Um, and I actually, I don't know, AJ, if you can, I don't know that I can think of a study of, you know, like patient reported outcomes or patient generated data um, where it's been stratified by age to know. Um, but my hunch is that you might be right, that that is um, something where we might actually see the flip. So if you're talking about just viewing your data, you may see that older people are more comfortable with that. But when we're actually asking you to report your own data, um, that that may be where younger people are more comfortable, um, both for privacy or just simply for the, for, you know, you know, 
sometimes you need devices and other things to do that. And so sometimes they're, you know, it's just the technical barriers that, that are, uh, you know, reduced for, for people who are younger. Um, so I, I would expect that you're right, but I can't think of a study that's actually looked at that. I would agree. And I would just add that um, there, there is a good amount of literature on one thing, which is that stated preferences around privacy and revealed preferences around privacy can really differ. Uh, and this was in a non-medical context, uh, but a lot of information technology researchers sort of refer to it as the pizza paradox, where it turns out the willingness to share all of your friends' contact information and, and your own personal details can usually be summed up at about the price of a pizza or a price of a sandwich. But when you act, when you run experiments and say, hey, would you give this information to someone for this? Almost everyone was to say, oh, yeah, sure, of course. Um, so I think that's it's always tough as, as policymakers and as health systems to try to balance this out. Because when you ask people, how do you want us to share your data with so other organizations as you move across the health system, you know, that strikes a really privacy focused tone. But then when you're actually in that process, especially if you're experiencing acute care event, where you're at a position where you really want things to work well in the background, your revealed preference can be very different at that time. That's a really good point. I, I do think most patients just want to know that they're getting good care and that they will kind of give up a lot if they have a really good sense that that's what, what they're getting. Okay, our next question is, has the Kaiser system developed a balanced system to address the issues? Um, so, uh, so Kaiser has been one of the pioneers in general with electronic health records and in particular with, I'd say, sort of their patient engagement tools. Um, they were one of the first ones that did a lot of the studies on patient portals and who was using them. So that uh, what I was mentioning before about, um, you know, how, uh, um, you know, how we knew that older patients were using the pa patient portal more often, that data actually came from Kaiser to begin with, uh, though has been replicated. Um, so, you know, I do think um, uh, Kaiser has been an example of like a very thoughtful approach to patient engagement. They've also invested a lot in helping their clinicians um, think about how to use the EHR well. Um, they do a lot with sort of training and helping their clinicians become sort of efficient and savvy at using the EHR. Uh, they've also invested a lot in care teams and sort of team-based approaches. So it's not always the physicians that are doing all of the work. Um, so I do think that Kaiser has been a really good example of, of a system that's really sort of invested in using their EHR well. Um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, their clinicians would tell you it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. Um, but, but I do think that, that you know, it, it's very, uh, uh, you know, they, they, the, the label that they have of being a pioneer is like well-deserved and well-earned. Um, and they've, I think, been quite thoughtful about some of these uh, uh, trade-offs um, as you're describing. AJ, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that one. Oh, that sounds good. And, it, it, you know, they have a very unique integrated delivery system that allows them to be a little more flexible and to make investments in, in these types of things that, that aren't necessarily immediately rewarded and sort of the fee-for-service system that, that places that are not using sort of uh, self-insured patient population are getting. So I think that's, that's really their strength. That's what's allowed them financially to, to make those investments and to, to sort of do some experimentation around that. Oh, it looks like there is a question in the chat, uh, oh, which is right. how are older patients using telehealth? Or are you seeing certain demographics primarily using the health system in this way? Um, which actually I'm not, not sure, Julie, have you, have you read any studies about the, the sort of age gradient in the post COVID era? Yeah, there's been a few studies of this um, and um, the findings are actually a little bit all over the place, which is interesting. 
Um, I think there's some places that have found that older patients are more likely to uh, to use it. And then the theory there is that, you know, they were there were particular concerns in that population about COVID and COVID risks. So they were sort of more likely to use telehealth. And then there are other places where you'll see that older patients were more likely to stick to face-to-face or return to face-to-face more quickly. Um, and I, I suspect what's underneath a lot of that is just sort of whether the health system was proactive and helping older patients adapt and figure out how to figuring out how to use telehealth. Um, because a lot of times it's not easy. You know, you have to have a patient portal account. You have to be able to like log into a platform like Zoom or something else. So like at UCSF, we launched a very specific program within primary care to like help older patients uh, take advantage of telehealth. But had we not had that program, I would imagine that we would not have seen, you know, as much uptake uh, with our older patients. Um, so I think, uh, you know, my overall sense is that there's oftentimes a lot of interest from those patients in doing it, but they also need extra help to take advantage. Um, and that's sort of some of the complicated factors that go into explaining why different studies have kind of come to different conclusions on what's happening there. Um, but I think especially for patients for whom travel is difficult, um, or sometimes if they want family members or other caregivers to be involved in the interaction, telehealth can really be a, a clear improvement um, because, you know, they don't have to travel and multiple people can be on, you know, the Zoom and or they, you know, the, the, the encounter um, and hear what's happening. Clinicians will also say that it can be really nice to see physically what the home looks like. And, you know, patients can go and like grab their medication, say, oh, you know, I'm taking this. Um, so, so there are many ways, you know, in which telemedicine, I think, can be particularly uh, beneficial for, for older patients. Um, and again, you know, that's part of what we're, we're studying now that this has all been forced to happen as a result of the pandemic. So I think we'll see a lot more evidence and understanding of, uh, of sort of the scenarios in which telemedicine might actually be preferred to face-to-face care for some of the unique needs of older patients. Okay, and I think there's also a question in the chat about uh, differences in age for older versus newly trained physicians with the EHR. Again, I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing in the data is that, you know, overall, you don't see a lot of age-related differences. Um, I think anecdotally, you'll hear a lot about older physicians that say, like, I retired rather than learn how to use the EHR. But I think that that's more the exception than the norm. Um, And so, um, you know, again, that's, you know, I think that that probably that effect exists, but in a small way. Um, But what we have haven't seen, I've studied at least, is like whether there are different patterns of using the EHR by age. So there've been a lot of studies about like, did older physicians adopt or not adopt, but kind of assuming that they adopted an EHR, do they use it differently? Um, I don't know that we've actually studied that question. It would be interesting um, to see if they're sort of, you know, if sort of digital natives, you know, are using, you know, a broader range of functionality in the EHR or, you know, otherwise, you know, more efficient in how they use the EHR. And I suspect the answer would be yes, but um, I don't think anyone's looked at that that I know of. Um, So let's see, this new question that came in is with so many people now linked to EHRs and everyone able to upload health information and everyone contactable in cases of contact tracing needs, why is this not the enlightened age of epidemiology? AJ, you want to take that one to start? Yeah. And so I, I think in some ways I will say, I don't, I want to say it's the enlightened age, but I do think that we certainly have a much more robust system for aggregating research data across multiple systems than we did even 10 years ago, 
and much better than we did 20 or 30 years ago, thanks to sort of a, a broad set of, of, you know, digitized data. We essentially have this digital infrastructure now. I will say also that sort of uh, as a historical quirk of the policy of where we got this, most of the money that the federal government provided went to acute care providers. And that was sort of acute care hospitals and primary care physician offices to adopt electronic health records. There was some pools of money for, for sort of all of the other things, uh, but it was much, much smaller. And one of those other things that got a very small pool of money was unfortunately public health agencies. And so Julia and I, as well as a, a colleague who's at the University of Pennsylvania, did a study very early on in the pandemic where we had actually recently looked at some survey data that had asked hospitals about how they were able to report data electronically to their local public health agency and if you know they had experienced any barriers or problems to doing that. And unsurprisingly, as a reflection of this, something like 60% of hospitals said, we are able to send data electronically, but our local public health agency does not have the capability to routinely intake that data in electronic structured format and then do things with it. So I think that's where we sort of saw the disinvestment in local public health agencies. This is especially true in more rural states or more rural regions. Uh, and it's not just having the technology. It's not just buying a computer system. You need to have someone who manages that. Things break. They need to figure out who is making sure it's keeping up with standards, who is doing regular quality controls. Then once the data is in at that public health agency, who is doing data visualization, who's cleaning that data and taking a look at it and sort of generating useful insights about it. And I think that's where in the early days of COVID, especially, we saw sort of the, the reflection of the disinvestment and the underinvestment in local and state level public health agencies really come there because it turns out they just didn't have like a really robust technology solution system. They didn't have a a sort of workforce employed that could do that. And so we ended up falling back on fax machines a lot. Now, obviously, in terms of other epidemiology things, there are really great studies that take advantage of this sort of digital infrastructure. The UCs are all connected by a single digital infrastructure. We all share de-identified clinical data, and it's led to a lot of really great research opportunities. Um, and I think in the future, we'll see more and more of this. But I do think, you know, COVID obviously highlighted some, some real downfalls in investing in one area of the healthcare system without sort of concomitant investments in other areas. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.